Welcome and thank you for joining us for Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks to have a meaningful conversation about the important issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and through the lens of seafood, each episode will zoom in on the people who farm it, catch it, innovate it, protect it for future generations, and of course, those of us that make it delicious on your plate. I'm really honored to have a, a wonderful guest with us today, uh, Margaret Henderson. Uh, Margaret is the campaign manager for Stronger America Through Seafood. Uh, she's got over 15 years of experience on and in Capitol Hill on issues related to oceans and marine fisheries. Uh, previously, she served as the vice president of government relations for the National Fisheries Institute. She was the executive director of the Gulf Seafood Institute and Gulf Seafood Foundation. Uh, and she works with clients today, including food giants like Cargill, the Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, Mississippi Department of Marine Resources, the Gulf Oyster Industry Council, Chesapeake Bay Seafood Industry Association, Argos Alliance, and more. Um, Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thanks, Robert. It's good to connect with you again in this, in this new techie, cool platform that I'm just becoming accustomed to. Uh, well, gr it's great to hear your voice. And uh, for those listeners, uh, Margaret and I have worked together on issues before. Uh, we worked <clears throat> together about five years ago uh, on some issues in the Gulf of Mexico, making sure that everybody got uh, continued access to sustainable seafood in the Gulf. And of course, you've gone on to do big and great things, which I'm excited to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. Let me start with a little bit of scene setting. I always like to start with the kind of the wide end of a lens of an issue and, and work our way down. Um, you know, in terms of the things that are on my mind today um, in, in the context of our global food systems, um, we, you know, our planet faces some pretty serious challenges. Uh, we are on track to grow to a population of around 9.5 billion people uh, by 2050. And all of those feet for those those folks need to be fed nutritious food uh, in order to be healthy. Um, our climate around the world is changing, and that's really creating some stress and challenge on our traditional food production, both on the water and land. Uh, and then, of course, a most recent, uh, we face the global COVID pandemic, and that's put some unexpected stress on our supply chains, uh, both uh, from farm to table and from boat to throat, as I like to say. With that context um, about kind of the challenges we face on, on, on the big scale, tell me a little bit about how you see the U.S. seafood industry challenges and what you're looking at right now. Well, thanks. You know, I, uh, um, and on boat to throat, I'm sorry, I don't mean to, I don't mean to laugh. I just, uh, we've got farm to fork and uh, yeah, I like boat to throat. Um, but I think, you know, Robert, you're talking about what for me, um, you know, I'm not just a, a federal advocate. Um, I'm also a wife and a mother. I've got three little girls. And for me, you know, just as a, as a consumer, so much of these challenges are bringing up for me this craving for security more than anything. You know, it's, it's like, that's my human nature is to, how am I going to protect my family? Um, how are we going to, you know, with COVID in particular, oh my gosh, you know, just 
it was, it was pretty scary those first few weeks. Um, you know, now in hindsight, we have a little bit better understanding of, of the threat and ways to mitigate it. But that unknown there at the beginning was really frightening. And, you know, in terms of the seafood community, um, you know, challenges, you said the word challenges, I mean, mass unemployment, I think, and shutdowns of these operations are, are really a challenge for them. Um, unequivocally, you know, layoffs as a nation. I think we've got 40 million unemployed. I don't know the latest numbers on the seafood industry, but I'm sure it's reflective of that bigger number. But at the same time, you know, you're talking about seafood, which the beauty of this industry is there is so much untapped opportunity. And that's really what the organization I represent on this on this project, and I think the subject of our talk conversation today, Stronger America Through Seafood, um, came together roughly two and a half years ago to facilitate increased opportunity for the seafood community through the enactment of federal regulations, federal policies that will open up new avenues. Um, for both people in the seafood supply chain directly and then the consumers that depend on them. You know, again, the moms or the dads, um, the caregivers, people who are out consuming seafood, buying seafood for their friends or their families. And so, you know, there is so much untapped opportunity, yet I think the real challenge is how do we leverage that opportunity. And by we, I know you're, you're talking globally, and I think globally there is a challenge. But my focus clearly is at the, the U.S. level. Um, I don't feign to be at all involved in international seafood policy. There are better experts there. But in domestic policy, I see more, much more opportunity than challenge. But we need some significant policy changes in order to enable that op opportunity to occur. Um, and of course, the project and the issue that we've spent the most time on recently at Stronger America through seafood is the enactment of federal policies that will enable increased U.S. seafood production, mostly through aquaculture. And the biggest opportunity at the federal policy level right now is in terms of open ocean aquaculture. So that would be uh, marine aquaculture in federal oceans, which is between three and 200 miles offshore. And that's an opportunity that is completely untapped at present, completely. Um, and it seems short-sighted, particularly when you come to realize how interdependent and dependent we are as a country on sources of seafood that are not local. And I don't have personally any challenge at all. I trust the FDA process and HACCP and all of the different requirements for ensuring the safety of our imported seafood. That's not my challenge. But I do think what a missed opportunity in terms of creating more of our own here at home. That would give me as a, as a consumer a little bit greater sense of security that the store shelves, you know, Obviously, most recently, the rush was on toilet paper. I don't know why. That seems like a completely bizarre thing to hoard. But that tells me, you know, people are bizarre. People are not linear thinkers. And the next big challenge that comes, uh, maybe it'll be fish. I have no idea. But I would like to know that we as a country are sourcing 
and capable of producing more of our own sustainable foods, healthy animal proteins like seafood here at home. Um, and at present, the regulations, uh, the regulatory structure is so unclear as to how we can achieve that, that it's completely prohibitive. So um, that's really what we've been focused on with this coalition, Stronger America Through Seafood, is creating a federal policy framework that will provide greater clarity for individuals or organizations to begin farming safely and sustainably in U.S. federal waters. The fundamental assumption that I hear that you're basing this on and in the development of this really diverse coalition is there. there's an opportunity to increase domestic production of seafood. And, and it sounds like that's both through farming and aquaculture and through through more wild capture seafood. And, and it sounds like the coalition is, uh, is supportive of both of those and doing both of those in a sustainable way. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I, I, the reason we have focused, our mission is really broad. Our mission as a, as a coalition is to increase safe, sustainable, affordable seafood. Um, that's that's our, our American seafood, I should say. Um, that's, the big, that's the big mission. Um, our focus in the past two years has been on, again, the offshore aquaculture opportunity because just in looking at the, the scope of attention in Washington on fish policy, the attention right now is on making possible open ocean aquaculture. And so our group has said, like, let's, let's help that process unfold. Um, you know, I, of course, worked as, a, as an advocate, a lobbyist um, during our most recent reauthorization of Magnus and Stevens back in 2007. Um, you know, clearly there could be tweaks and and updates to that authorizing legislation as well. But for whatever reason, it has not been a huge mover in recent years. And so we kind of, when we're debating on our priorities, you know, it's not just what does the industry need, but what is DC focused on? And that's where we're going to kind of maximize our, our messaging is in that scope. Um, but absolutely, the wild capture community. And we always say, you know, our members represent both. You know, like one of our big members, just for example, is Cisco. And, you know, they're selling a ton of wild seafood. You know, they their customers need it all. And there's room for both. There's just a different market depending on who the customer is. Um, if you're talking retail, you know, somebody like Publix or Safeway, they're going to need a variety. They're going to have customers who are going out to buy you know, an anniversary dinner. Okay, this is when I'm going to go buy $25 a pound wild sockeye salmon. You know, that that's the type of thing. But I am I going to do that on a, what's today, Tuesday? I'm not going to, I was just texting with my mother-in-law. She's in town for a little bit, helping out. And um, she's going to make salmon for dinner tonight. Literally, she was just texting me when you guys were setting up. And uh, we've got frozen, um, I believe it's probably Atlantic salmon, um, in our fridge and we shop at Publix and we have frozen Atlantic salmon and that's great because I don't I can't remember the price tag but it's it's pretty affordable and I've got again I've got three kids like this is this is something that my family can do on a random Tuesday night um, so you really you need both and and sometimes it's sometimes it's wild you know we have Mayport shrimp um, is a big thing here on the East Coast and that's an amazing 
really tasty product. Um, but depending on the seasonality, that stuff is not cheap. And, you know, I saw it once, I think it was $15.99 a pound. And I was like, oh, I really want it. But, uh, you know, it makes it, it makes it difficult. And I think the big fear and concern among the seafood community is if we don't offer enough affordable options, you know, the default as American consumers is just to skip the seafood aisle altogether. And that's not just when it comes to price either. That's when it comes to any sort of of um, contamination concern or, you know, I think in general, there's a lot of just confusion about seafood. And, and for the most part, that consumers aren't, for the most part, going to take the time to determine whether, oh, is it, was it the, the lobster that was a challenge right now? Or was it the oysters? I can't remember. I saw something on the Today Show. I'm going to head on down to the B file. And, and they just forget it all together. And you know that. I mean, this is, this is a ubiquitous conversation in the seafood industry, but I don't know that many people recognize that that decision is occurring. But we all, you know, we recognize it. You have a dinner party conversation like, oh, I love seafood, but I hate to cook it at home. And we don't ever sit down and analyze that pattern. Like, why is it that I don't like to cook it at home? Like, what, what is it in my nature that makes me think that's more difficult than cooking a, a chicken breast? You know, it's not. But for some reason, we're kind of conditioned to think that this is an intimidating product. Yeah, I think a lot of people are having that conversation now, especially post-COVID, because there's so many people cooking at home all of a sudden. And you've got all of these chefs out of work who are now doing their Instagram videos and trying to teach people how to cook seafood at home. So it's up, it's up a little bit, but it... But it really speaks to another topic I wanted to make sure that we covered, which is underlying the need for boosting domestic production, is that what we really know is that we should be eating more seafood. It's really healthy. Um, and, and we Americans are not eating enough of it. Um, and when we do eat seafood, it's usually in a restaurant. And, and in fact, about 90% of all domestically harvested seafood goes to restaurants, which to your point about unemployment earlier, really caused a problem when every restaurant in America closed overnight. Right. Yeah. Another big member that we work with is Red Lobster. And, um, you know, they're headquartered down in Orlando, Florida. I haven't spoken with um, with them in the immediate, you know, recent couple days, but I know for a fact that they're struggling. Um, it's, a, it's a scary time. It's a lot of uncertainty. Um, but again, you know, it's this, it's, it's the paradox of adversity, right? You know, we, as a, as a species, we face these, these adverse conditions, but it's only through these adverse conditions that we're able to, to be shaken awake and figure out kind of a different way to, to build a mousetrap, you know, and, and maybe we as an industry have not leveraged the home cooking angle as much as we could have. And not to say that we should, neglect the restaurant aspect like that obviously should go without saying we want to build that back cautiously as as public health permits but i think it's been this challenge that's woken people up to hey why on earth aren't more people cooking seafood at home this is another it's again it's an untapped opportunity so it's kind of a paradoxical way to look at things like nobody wants adversity but it's the only way we can grow and evolve ultimately I want to talk a little bit about the Stronger America Through Seafood Coalition. Um, you know, it's it's a really interesting group of folks, large operators, smaller operators, 
big players like Highliner Foods and Pacific Seafood, like you said, you mentioned Red Lobster, Cargill, um, Taylor Shellfish, a, a, a lot of different size organizations in that coalition. And I'm curious, what considering that historically aquaculture had has sometimes been controversial, especially with the wild capture fishing community. What was the watershed moment that brought this diverse coalition together to say, it's time for us to work together on this issue? I think this, you know, and I've, I've talked about this a lot recently, and you mentioned it at the opening, you know, my, my work in the seafood industry is going on over 15 years now. Um, and, and it's always been in the capacity as a lobbyist and or advocate, depending on the project. Um, and this has been talked about for a very long time, predating my work in the seafood business, clearly. Um, you know, the National Aquaculture Act was established well before that. And the idea that we need to get into the game, so to say, has predated me because globally, aquaculture is an industry that is taking off. You referenced in your opening comments, our population is predicted to reach 9.5 billion globally by 2050. So there's an increased demand, I think, for finding creative alternative sources for healthful protein to feed all these people. And most countries around the world eat a heck of a lot of seafood more per capita than the United States does. We kind of lag behind. And again, I, this is an awkward way to characterize how much fish we eat, but it's the one that I most readily remember. Um, and that is Americans eat on average per person per year, 16 pounds of seafood, but we eat over 200 pounds per year per person of red meat. And, mm. you know, there's a, that's a distance that needs to be, that needs to be made up. So the, these companies, you know, and I think really the driver behind this coalition was Cargill, which is a unique player in the seafood business. Anybody in the business recognizes they're a very important player. Um, they're an ag firm. They're based out of Minnesota. They do a ton on uh, land-based agriculture, but they also, one of their four big divisions is aquaculture, but they're not doing aquaculture, at least in the open ocean and much less uh, even land-based here in the United States. And it was Cargill's relatively new aquaculture um, executive, a woman named Catherine Unger, uh, who she and I intersected several times in different seafood forums, Boston Seafood Show, a couple round tables. She and I interacted and intersected. And she actually asked me like, why, why, aren't, why aren't we doing this? And just out of curiosity, human nature, she's wondering what, what, what is going on here? And um, through several in-depth conversations, she and I really, I think, energized one another as to this is a problem we think we can overcome if we get the right team together. And so she helped to recruit an initial meeting in December of 2017 in D.C. of the leaders that you just mentioned the leaders that have subsequently become our board for the most part but it was really intentional we wanted to bring together a representative sample of the community but not just the men and women on the water not just the fishers themselves who are the ultimate benefactors of this industry consumers obviously but you know the tech guys the um, feed manufacturers 
the terrestrial agriculture community. More and more percentage of seafood is seafood meal is made up of soybeans, peas, corn, land-based ag commodities. And, you know, why haven't these guys ever been bought into the conversation? It's really always been historically the aquaculture, particularly offshore aquaculture discussion in DC, I call it, it's been a fish fight. It's been commercial individuals, people who are commercially minded and or um, I think uh, conservationists who, who are very wary of any development in the ocean versus the the organizations and institutions who believe we can do more. There's there's but it's been really focused on fish, which is better, wild versus farmed. Um and this isn't even about fish. Uh it's about so much more. Again, you know, the American Soybean Association has been hugely supportive of what we're trying to do. They've got a trade problem right now. Their export markets for US soybeans have been really curtailed. And they're looking for new market opportunities. And again, back to that idea of security, you know, it's not just me as a mom trying to secure my family from COVID, you know, which is what immediately pops to mind right now, but it's companies, soy farmers looking for security in their markets. And, you know, if we can do more of that domestically, we have so much more control over our own future. The idea was to to bring a new set of spokespeople to the table who'd not previously engaged in what had formerly been a fish fight and which really had no business being a fish fight. It's much greater than that. And so that's been the beauty of SATS has been bringing in a diverse set of spokespeople from all across the supply chain who are agreed on one primary mission that we can do better. We can produce more healthful, sustainable, affordable protein, seafood protein here in the United States. That's what unites us. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. You hit the nail on the head of my question uh, in that, you know, my... By my estimation, there's been sort of three major barriers to uh, aquaculture and and seafood farming, um, and one being 
sort of a limited amount of, of capital investment in it two being a, a regulatory environment that needs clarity and, and, and three on the consumer uptake, there being misinformation out there over the years and, and the, in the entrance of big players like Cargill obviously addresses, it's a game changer, like you said, and it, it addresses, you know, the capital investment question. So I, as the coalition has come together and, and you are focused on the regulatory issue, what, what are the challenges that you face in bringing clarity um, to the rules and standards around, around aquaculture on Capitol Hill? So the, it's broken. The, the, the permitting process that you would attempt to undertake were you interested in engaging in open ocean fish farming at present, I say it's broken, but it just never existed. There is no clarity in terms of how an organization would become permitted. And by permitting, it's just saying you're abiding all of the existing rules and regulations in order to to engage in an activity. So that's all we're trying to do. We're trying to find a way to prove, and really the way, you know, through permitting, um, to prove that you are checking all of the requisite boxes. So we're not seeking to undermine any existing statute. There are numerous agencies and regulations and laws to which you must abide if you're going to engage in any sort of activity in the ocean. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, we support all of that, but the agencies involved, you know, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, those of course are EPA functions. Um, uh, Marine Mammal Protection Act, that's a NOAA function. Um, Army Corps permitting for navigation. Um, there are so many different agencies involved in this process. And right now there's no clear lead in terms of where would you go? And so what has happened is groups have tried and and there's one group in particular that we work with quite a bit, Hubs SeaWorld Research Institute, and they have been trying for 20 years to obtain a permit to farm off the southern coast of California. Um, they've spent over $9 million going from agency to agency saying, okay, now what? Okay, so we got the Army Corps sign off, you know, from this district office and everything looks great. We went to NOAA, we went to the Navy, you know, just different agencies. It's knocking on doors, getting permission from different agencies. And lo and behold, there's a tiny shift in the wind and some district office has a change in personnel and the whole thing goes out the window. And there they are as an organization, again, completely unable to to enact in the process they're trying to enact in. So what is needed, and I'll, and I'll back up real quick, another op option is companies have attempted or seen the example of other organizations seeking to obtain permits. They've given up and then taken their investment and or their, their jobs and they've just said, you know, screw it, we're going to Mexico. <laughs> we're going to Panama, we're going to Chile, we're going to Norway, we're going to China. Um, and that's just, that's, we can't abide that anymore. That's not sustainable as a country. We can no longer just be takers. We have to be producers. And I think that's, that's, 
maybe that's an opinion. Maybe that's not a fact. Maybe there are people who believe 100% we could just be takers and uh, that we can continue to exist as, as an economy in that way. I don't know. I feel like it's going to take all types of things, particularly now, to put us back to work and for us to continue to stifle innovation through just a lack of coordination seems really short-sighted. And that's all it is. It's a lack of coordination. So what we're seeking to achieve is a unified, consistent set of standards and protocols through which an organization would pass in order to obtain a permit. And that that process need not undermine any statute that I was talking about. You know, the, the environmental statutes could remain completely intact. We hope they do remain completely intact. But on some level, you got to give us a hand. Tell us, tell us who to go to. And and there is legislation that's been introduced in D.C. and um, different versions have been introduced. And we're we're anticipating um, a bipartisan Senate bill will be introduced relatively soon. We've got a bipartisan House bill, and effectively, all this legislation seeks to do is establish a process by which NOAA, as a lead agency, could permit, um, could help companies abide these statutes and also ultimately obtain in a relatively reasonable amount of time, a permit to engage in this activity in open oceans. And you mentioned, you know, the, the different obstacles to U.S. aquaculture, regulatory, um, public perception, and then um, what was the third one? You went, oh, investment. Capital investment. They yeah. all are, they're all interconnected. You know, we work yeah. quite a bit with the investment community. And until there's clarity of a permitting process, they're not going to invest here. They're going to go with the sure thing. Why take a gamble? Um, so they're intertwined. The regulatory piece is critical for the investment piece. Um, and then, of course, I think the public perception, you know, if we're not if we're not as a country producers, net producers of seafood, there's really no motivation for people to become educated on it. It's not tactile. They can't conceptualize, you know, why am I going to spend my time learning more about the production of seafood and its sustainability impacts or its health impacts? Because as an American consumer, I'm spending most of my time eating red meat because that's just what's readily available. If we make more American seafood, I believe, available, there will be an interest. There will be increased interest. So maybe that's a little bit of a Pollyanna sort of, you know, oh, if you build it, they will come. But I, I do believe, again, you know, I'm a I'm fascinated by the human psyche, and I think that that's that's pretty legitimate. At least it apply it would apply to me. Um, the more I'm I'm dealing with something and interacting with something, the more I'm interested in it. And I think that if we're back to work as a country, if our waterfronts are actively producing seafood, not just condominiums, um, I think that there will be more education and more awareness of of all of the benefits. And I think on the misinformation front, the 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 coalition that you've put together also helps address that, right? Because a lot of that has been been spun off by a food fight between industries. And now you've got folks saying, you know what, that has to be part of our portfolio of business, even though traditionally we may be a terrestrial agriculture company. And it, it sounds like there's more understanding at an industry level, and that probably will help um, reduce the amount of misinformation that had been put out into the sphere about aquaculture. Um, 
I wanted to go back real quick. I think you are referencing and talking about legislation. I think you're referencing the Advancing Quality and Understanding of American Aquaculture Act, which is, uh, I love the acronym. It comes out to Aqua Act. I know. It's like they did it on purpose or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was filed by Colin Peters, Representative Colin Peterson in Minnesota and Steve Palazzo in Mississippi. So you, it sounds like you uh, are hopeful that that legislation in the House and something that is imminently going to be filed in the Senate has has a good chance at passage? I think it has a good chance of getting people paying attention. I think um, I would love to see it passed, and that is our mission, and we are doing our level best to see that occur. We're also aware of the climate right now um, in terms of, of what the challenges politically that we're dealing with. Um, you know, look at the headlines. We've, we as a country have a lot going on right now um, that we didn't necessarily weren't confronting or dealing with six months ago. Um, so taking that into account, I think really the introduction of these bills, these bills that have been at this point very well researched by both parties, um, the Democrats and the Republicans on Capitol Hill have undertaken an extensive process of information gathering, forums, um, research trips. I mean, they've been out and about visiting aquaculture operations. So they are very much more educated than uh, previously on what needs to occur. And that's just wonderful. I think, you know, information is, is power on this issue. And so they, they are poised to introduce, in my opinion, some very, very good legislation. Will we get it passed in 2020? Um, it's, it would certainly be an, an uphill battle, but can we get a product that industry and environmentalists can become familiar with and become comfortable with such that in 2021, we are, are well positioned to move quickly? Yes, I think absolutely so. And I think that's the importance of the work that the congressional members have done in doing their homework on this. Um, it, it is well crafted in terms of balancing the need for investment, recognizing the need for investment. There's no point in authorizing a process to permit open ocean aquaculture if it's so terribly restrictive that nobody does it. I mean, that would just be, that's just silliness. So it balances the need to provide clarity while also establishing very, um, very high bars for preserving sustainability and ecosystems and, and the other impacted communities. So treating the impacts to existing water, um, water-based industries, commercial fishing, navigation, coastal communities, tribes, all of those are considered in this process. So um, we're excited for the next six months and, and getting this bill introduced and uh, having a really energized but thoughtful conversation such that we can get moving on this. Um, I think ultimately we all want the same thing. We want to be able to allow the United States to grow more fish. And it's just a matter of couple issues, you know, finding a, a, a point of agreement on a couple issues, and, and we're almost there, I believe. In terms of the politics around this, it appears that there's 
there's support from the administration as well. Would you give us a primer on the May 7th executive order related to seafood that came came out from the president? Absolutely. Yeah, it was the, the executive order on U.S. seafood competitiveness. And depending on what printer you used, <laughs> I've, I've printed it on several different printers. Sometimes it comes out six pages. Com- sometimes it comes out seven pages. But it's very succinct. And it basically has three parts. One addresses some challenges faced by the traditional commercial fishing community. Um, it talks a little bit about import-export. Um, but the, the thrust of the executive order is to establish NOAA as the lead agency and give some pretty ambitious timelines in terms of establishing, through existing statutory authority, a process by which NOAA can lay the groundwork for a permitting process for open ocean aquaculture. There's a little bit of discussion as to whether it goes far enough to actually allow permitting. Um, I've heard both. I've heard some people say, yes, you could seek a permit under just the executive order alone. I think the majority opinion is that most people would feel far more comfortable if we also have an act of Congress establishing unequivocally NOAA's authority to take the lead in this space. Um, You know, unfortunately, seafood has become quite litigious, as I think most industries have, and uh, nobody wants to be confronted with um, a lawsuit over a a question of of certainty to operate. And so I think the two-part path, having both strong executive leadership and um, a framework regulatorily from NOAA and the other affected agencies on one hand, and then also very clear legal permission from Congress on the other hand, makes for that certainty that investment will need in order to start um, putting the money into the United States as opposed to overseas. So politically, you know, I, I talk about this a lot, you know, I am not political in terms of party politics. I've never represented, you know, not in recent memory when it comes to seafood. It's really not a party issue. It depends, you know, and you and Robert, you and Robert, Robert, you and I know based on our past and our work, um, it depends on the issue. It's issue dependent. It depends on the species, who's working with who. Um, It's very nebulous. And Fortunately, the issue of, of seafood, the issue of open ocean aquaculture is not partisan. Um, it, it really isn't. And so I get asked quite a bit, you know, what does this upcoming presidential election mean for your campaign? And I don't think it really will impact our efforts too significantly. Clearly, there, if it is a new administration, there will be a learning curve in terms of working with new faces. But I believe that the philosophy and the intent of what we're trying to achieve surpasses the personalities and is is much more uh, an issue of policy. So hopefully, in terms of politics, because that was your question, the upcoming election won't have too much bearing um, in terms of our ability to navigate the process. So flash forward 10 years from today, June 23rd, 2030, uh, if Margaret Henderson got everything she wanted for Christmas in terms of the SATS campaign, what, 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 is the, what does the world look like um, in terms of our, the U.S. offering of seafood 10 years from now? 
in terms of, of the future of aquaculture, that is the question. And the answer is a resounding, it depends. We are in this position, and this is why this is so cool. This is why I love what I do. We are crafting our future. We have an opportunity to decide, you and me, American consumers, the seafood supply chain, advocates in D.C., we have the opportunity to decide now what that will look like. And if I have my wish list and the clarity of the permitting process is such that we are bringing investment here at home, you know, first and foremost, I would love to see a broader community of stakeholders emerging through the opportunity of offshore aquaculture. Again, you know, for so long, the face of the U.S. seafood community has been kind of like this this, you know, Santa Claus looking guy, you know, he's the, the fisherman with the waders and he's out in the New England, you know, storm and he's, he's hunting and gathering. The future of U.S. seafood is so much more diverse. It is the tech industry. It is the ocean engineering industry. It's manufacturing. It's tech and, and science. It's the terrestrial farmer who's producing the sustainable grains that are needed for this ever-evolving and increasingly efficient fish meal that we're producing here at home. It's working waterfronts. I have nothing against condominiums, um, not at all, but I do see that we are quickly moving away from shorelines that are productive and shorelines that are more focused on sitting on our rear ends. And <laughs> that's fine. Everybody deserves to sit on the rear end. But there is a recognition we need to put people back to work. And the waterfronts used to be, you know, the heart and soul of our economy. Can we can we do that again? I think yes. But we can also go wrong. And if we are too if these if these let me say if if the process comes out in a way that is in any way unclear or in any way disincentivizes investment, then we can just continue doing what we're doing, Robert. And that is increasingly relying on other sources of, of food. You know, since the original Aqua Act, and it wasn't called the Aqua Act, it was called the National Offshore Aquaculture Development Act, I believe, back in 2005 was introduced by Senators Daniel Inouye, a Democrat from Hawaii, and Ted Stevens, a Republican from Alaska, they cite in their opening, their opening um, the introduction of that bill, they cite, I believe it was 80% of U.S. seafood is imported, and that was a concern. And they issue that. It's not my concern, but it was a concern expressed in the, the opening of their legislation. No, it's not 90% today. That was 15 years ago. Right. That's, that's a huge leap and not a lot of time. So the writing's on the wall. I mean, it's not it's not difficult to predict again that that we are we are becoming very increasingly dependent. And again, the seafood supply chain is global. Nobody has a beef with with imports. I mean, imports are, are important. We're not going to ever, I don't think, become completely dependent on our own supply. We we have to continue to ensure the safety and availability of imported seafood. That that's just that goes without saying. But we can become over-reliant. And again, you just, you just miss this opportunity, this awesome opportunity um, for preserving 
our own environment, for setting, for setting an example globally of how this can be done in a way that makes the most sense, how we can increase more affordable, avail, available, affordable farmed seafood um, to where if I'm going to the store to look for something that's affordable, it's not just domestic, super, super expensive seafood versus imported cheap. Like there's a, there's a halfway point. You know, we can we can find a middle ground there if we can get over ourselves enough to allow this industry to take off. But we got to start with baby steps. You know, there's this fear that, oh, you know, we passed the legislation and it's this race to race to the agency to get permitted. It will evolve slowly and I think constructively. I don't anticipate that there's going to be a massive rush to permitting and that our oceans will just be um, overtaken. That's, that's the fear talking. There are people who are, for whatever reason, morally opposed to open ocean fish farming. I think that's short-sighted, but it's true. And they will leverage this, this fear to their advantage. And that just keeps us stagnant. It, it doesn't allow for growth. We have to allow, um, some, some level of development so that we can, begin on a very constructive path forward and uh, just keeping it completely shut down isn't the answer. That's not how you evolve. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's a slow path towards increasing a, a wonderfully diverse community of stakeholders um, from AI, uh, you know, we're working, gosh, we're working with this really cool company out of Silicon Valley right now that's creating um, artificial intelligence to be deployed in, in fish farms that can detect in super specificity um, effluence and mitigate for any impacts of potential parasites or uh, over um, population in the net net pins, you know, this, this artificial technology, artificial intelligence technology is critical to addressing any of the, the potential concerns environmentally. Um, they have huge skin in the game and they want to get in the game. They would love to find an opportunity, not only to sell their technology to Norway, but also to sell it here domestically. Um, so guys and gals in that sector need to be part of this discussion. Well, going back to the uh, my kind of opening and the bigger lens and the challenges we face globally and in this country, I, I hope, I personally hope, as a as a lover of science, seafood, and as a chef, I hope that we take this moment um, that COVID has presented, uh, where we've all just witnessed some pretty serious breakdowns in our food supply system. I hope we take this moment to reflect on what we, you know, where we are today, what we can achieve and, 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 and move forward in a way that puts all of these options on the table, because we're only going to be able to respond, you know, we're only going to be able to be climate resilient and respond to population growth and deal with threats to the supply chain. If we have a really diverse portfolio of, of food, and that is going to have to include traditional aquaculture, I mean, traditional agriculture and fishing, as well as aquaculture, plant-based foods, et cetera. It's really going to all have to be in the portfolio, I think, if we're going to meet the challenges we face. So that's my, my, my editorial. Um, 
Absolutely. So let me wrap up with uh, just putting a fine point uh, in a personal question. Let's assume the Aqua Act passes and is signed by this president or another president. What is the what is the indulgent seafood meal that Margaret Henderson will be having to celebrate? <sighs> My favorite, Robert, and this wouldn't be dependent on the legislation passing, um, crab cakes, 100%. Every time I go out to eat, if there's crab cakes on the menu, I'm doing it. And my favorite, there was a restaurant in D.C. called Acadiana. And when I worked with the Gulf of Mexico community, Gulf Seafood Institute, Gulf Oyster Industry Council, we used to host a ton of really fun events. I think you – have you been to any of our events at Acadiana I have, I have. during D.C. Mardi Gras? Oh, man. We did it right. And Acadiana had the best crab cakes. And um, they were just, they were amazing. Unfortunately, Acadiana is no longer with us. May they rest in peace, um, which was a tragedy on a major scale. But uh, I need to find whoever was the chef there. I know I can get in touch with them somehow because I know people who know him. And I need to get that recipe um, because that's what I'm having. Well, a, a, a crab cake with a nice uh, a Sauvignon Blanc is a, is a hell of a celebration meal. So it's a good, good choice. Tell our listeners how they can learn more about Stronger America Through Seafood. So our website is strongerthroughseafood.org. And we have a Twitter handle, Seafood for America. So Seafood, the number for America is our Twitter handle. And um, so those two ways I think would be brilliant. And uh, I would love for people to get in touch, find out how they can become engaged, um, you know, because politics, whether we like it or not, we are, we are involved in a political discussion and the art of politics is the art of addition. We need more progressive um, solution-based thinkers to join our cause and help us get the word out about the many benefits of increasing U.S. seafood production. And so um, we are we are more than happy to facilitate additional discussions with groups who want to get engaged either through our group or on their own. Um, there's a multitude of opportunities to get engaged on this really important issue. So we, we appreciate it, Robert. Thank you. Yeah. So there you go. StrongerThroughSeafood.org is the way to find out more information. Uh, Margaret Henderson uh, today, great interview. Thank you for joining us. Uh, really appreciate uh, the, the conversation walking through the seafood landscape, boosting domestic production, aquaculture, the whole gamut. Um, you guys are doing great work uh, and we really appreciate it and, and appreciate your time today, Margaret. It was great to hear your voice. Thanks, you too, Robert. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Seafoodie. To find additional episodes, please go to coastalnewstoday.com or wherever you normally download your podcast. We also appreciate you spreading the word to your fellow seafood aficionados. Until next time, I wish you calm seas, plump oysters, and sizzling shrimp.